Friends with Ayu Santasika and Sister Chitananda. And for those of you that had the benefit of listening last night, you know the depth and humor and heart in his teachings. And I just want to also give gratitude to Bellingham Insight because it was with their graciousness that these two sisters came to the Northwest where we encountered them and they hosted them this weekend and also assisted us in hosting them here. So I want to um, bring them to the retreat as well. So um, a few bits of logistics. Um, the sisters will um, you know, inform us of how the day will unfold in terms of the schedule, but a few clear spots are we'll be um, breaking for lunch at 11.15, and then from 4 to 5, we'll be doing a tea for questions and answers. And then, um, aside from that, there's two um, composting toilets, one right between, right behind this building, and then another one kind of across from the road, you'll see an outdoor kitchen, and in that vicinity is another composting toilet, so those are two options. And... Um, all drinks in the hall need to have a container, like a top on them, if you're going to bring them in here. Otherwise, please leave them out in the foyer. And um, let us know if you can't hear. I think we're, this room is cozy enough that we won't have a problem. So thank you and welcome. Kalopa. Thank you. <coughs> Good morning. Good morning. So, as Diane mentioned, this will be a day of silence. And I don't know if everyone here has practiced noble silence, what the Buddha called noble silence, before, but it's not, it's not complete silence. It's the kind of thing where if something needs to be said, like, you know, where do you keep the serving spoons, that's, that's okay. But in general, everything else we just leave unsaid until the end, or times when I'm opening for questions, and we'll have that during noble silence. I find that practicing noble silence really gives me an opportunity to think about whether or not what I want to say is important, <laughs> is really necessary. It's a good practice. And we'll keep that during lunchtime. Also, to be really still. So, as you know, this day is about refuge. How do we, how do we find it? How do we create it? How do we take refuge? How do we, how do we create it for others? <clears throat> and in Theravadan Buddhism, there's a little ceremony of taking refuge that we do often and it comes along with taking the five precepts so the um, some of you may have already done this um, and some of you may not have any exposure to it so I'll explain how it works we have sheets. Uh, this is going to be something you're going to have an opportunity to do, but you don't have to. You can just 
observe if that's what feels right for you. Can everybody hear me okay? Good. Um, so the refuges in in the ceremony and and also in the teachings that the Buddha gave are the refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And of course, some people think of that as the historical Buddha taking refuge in the person that lived. 2,500 plus years ago and taught and gave us these beautiful teachings. But it's also just the, the awakened mind, the, the realization that he had, the, the, the state where, that he reached of being free from suffering and the ability to have that be our own reality, this awakened mind, wise mind. So taking refuge in that, and taking refuge in the Dharma or Dhamma, which is the same thing in different languages. The Dhamma is the truth of the way things are, taking refuge in that reality. And and the Sangha are the awakened disciples of the Buddha. Not not, um, just our Dharma buddies, but... The, uh, those who have realized and can share that and can demonstrate that and live that so that we have that guide and their, and their help. And sometimes they're a great help to help us remove the obstacles in our own minds. So that's what we take refuge in. And the, the Theravadan ceremonies are all quite simple, really. But they can be very powerful. The first time I did this, taking refuge and the and the five precepts, which I'll explain in a minute. And at that in that same um, ceremony, I took dependence on my teacher, and it was it's Ajahn Pasano who's at uh, Abbot at Abayagiri, In case you know about that place, taking dependence. Uh, on him is kind of a special thing because most monks don't allow that with lay people. They just, I mean, they just do it with other monastics. Can you? <clears throat> when we live in a monastery, we take dependence on the, the lead teacher or abbot or abbess. And it's a, it's a formal way of opening a teacher-student relationship so that you really can talk to them about anything and they take it seriously to guide you. But in, that, but in this case, we're, do, we're going to be um, just doing the refuges and the precepts. And when I did that, something really shifted for me. It's like Ajahn Pasano said, and then your practice really took off. <laughs> and it was true. And, it, and I kind of went back to that, wow, that, that whole thing was so simple. And yet it was quite powerful. So the, the five precepts, in brief, and I'm happy to take questions about this, are to, the first one, to avoid taking the life of any living being. So the word in, in Pali and, and Sanskrit, in, the, the word in Pali is pana. You might have heard the Sanskrit word prana. It's like the breath energy in the body. 
So any being that has breath, we avoid killing. And in Theravadan Buddhism, it's not the kind of um, over overly compulsive trying to avoid stepping on everything that you know might be there because it's not. It's it's about intention. You don't want to intentionally kill anything. But of course, accidentally, it happens all the time with small living beings, and what we really want to do is watch our mind so that that intention to kill is um, avoided, or or we don't follow it. And then to learn what that does uh, to our mind, to our heart. And the second precept is to avoid taking anything that isn't given. So it's a little bit more involved than not stealing because you have to think was this really intended for me you know that that dish of mints there was that really intended for me is that just for the customers of this business or you know whatever whatever and to be clear that this this is offered this is this is for me to use kind of keeps you from taking the office supplies home And then the third one is to avoid sexual misconduct, meaning to not harm oneself or others with our sexual energy. And this is what comes to my mind is a man who started coming to our center and um, after a, a few months having taken the five precepts and taken that quite seriously, he said that he he stopped all like flirting and joking with the women in his at his workplace and he said I am available to my wife now in a way that I had never been before and he never really thought of all those little things that people might do with sexual energy that you think aren't aren't really important and that really changed things for him And the fourth one is to refrain from false and harmful speech, which is pretty self-explanatory. Although, for many people, the hardest one. (laughs) And the fifth one is to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink or drugs, which lead to carelessness. And in my interpretation and the interpretation of most of my teachers, it means no drinking alcohol at all, um, no mind-altering drugs, uh, illicit drugs. It does not include prescribed medications. Um, we have to take care of our health, both in body and mind. But to you know, really look at what happens to the mind and how the the perception changes and how that affects the clarity of our mind. So those are the precepts. And I'm going to pass this, these papers out to you. Just send them through the rows. Given the tightness of our quarters, I think we'll just sit the way you are and do a little bow like that. 
just so it's easier. <clears throat> and you don't have to do any of this that doesn't feel like what you want. There's absolutely no pressure. And also you can think of this, if you want to, as just doing this for today. Um, or you can pick it up for with that intention just today when you put it down at the end of the day. Or you can take this and try it for a week, try it for a month, try it for the rest of your life. <laughs> Whatever is, is right for you right now. So it starts with three bows, and that's just to orient the heart. And then I will chant these first um, three um, lines in Pali language. And we won't do the English part. You can just see what it says. And after I do these, then nomo tasa three times, then you repeat it together three times. After that, I'll, re I'll do each line, and you repeat each line after me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. And now repeat it together. Tatiyampi Dhammang Saranang Gachami 
Tatiyampi Sankhang Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sankhang Saranam Gachami Tisaranam your response is Ama Aye. Anati Pata Veratmani Sikapadang Samadhyami. Go ahead, see if you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. Repeat. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. Adinadana veratmani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. Kamesumi chachara veratmani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musawada veratmani sikapadang samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from false and harmful speech. Sura Merayama Japamaditana Veratmani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. I undertake the precept to refrain from consuming intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. Imani Panchasi Kapadani Silena Sukatinyanti Silena Boka Sampada Silena Nibutinyanti Tasma Silangwi Sodaye. These are the five precepts. Virtue is the source of happiness. Virtue is the source of true wealth. Virtue is the source of peacefulness. Therefore, let virtue be purified. Beautiful. Little bows three times. So let's just 
sit for another 10 minutes. And then we'll do a little walking meditation. So find, make yourselves comfortable. Setting a, a clear intention for this day with our precepts and with our hearts open and ready to explore. Breathing in, breathing out, letting go of any tension. Really allowing the heart to soften and be present with whatever is arising. And it's all, it all belongs, it's all okay, whatever it is. There isn't anything we have to push away Just noticing, being aware of what we feel, what's going on in the body. Any pain, any discomfort, any tension, or where there might be pleasant feeling, or no feeling, neutral, almost unnoticed feeling. And just accepting that. And then noticing what's coming up in the mind. whatever thoughts there may be, not taking them too seriously, letting them pass, not attaching anything to them. Just maintaining a very open awareness. Bringing our attention to our breathing. If you're breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in. And when you're breathing out, knowing that you're breathing out. Feeling the quality of the breath. If it's long 
or short, cool or warm, jagged or smooth, or anything else you might notice about each in-breath and each out-breath. Whatever arises in meditation, just take an attitude of curiosity. Take all, look at that. But not to cling or attach, just let it go through. Whenever the mind gets distracted, as soon as you realize it, bring it back <clears throat> to the in-breath and the out-breath. It's your anchor. And then the boat can only drift a little bit. just runs around that one stable point just a little bit and then eventually settles down.
Just before we get up to do some walking, I wonder if you have any questions. Anyone? Okay. If anybody would like to learn about walking meditation, you can come up here and talk to me and everyone else. Find a place outside and walk. I think on the road is fine, but just watch that there might be vehicles. Don't want anyone smashed during the retreat. Yeah, don't have to think about the time. We're going to walk for 30 minutes, but Jeff will ring the bell. It's about five minutes before you have to come in. Or before we're going to start in here again. All of our possessions and our own bodies and our family members, everything that's material changes. And also our feelings and our thoughts, our perceptions, even our consciousness. All the things that we think we might think of as me or mine eventually change. And that's completely normal and natural. (coughs) There's nothing to be um, unhappy about with that. Once we actually develop the, the deep understanding of that reality. So those, none of that, um, is, is worthy of being considered a refuge. So then we ask, well, what is? What do we find, where do we find security? How can we establish a a place of safety for ourselves? So today I'm, I'm going to share a couple of different teachings of the Buddha with you to give us some more clarity around what actually provides refuge. So this teaching of the Buddha that I'm going to talk about now is called the powers. He talks about four powers that we can develop. And he says if we develop these four powers, there are five fears that we completely abandon. We don't have to be afraid of those things anymore. And I think those five things are things we've all had fear around, or many of us anyway. And the first one is the fear of losing our livelihood. I don't know if you've ever felt that concern, that fear of losing your livelihood, but it's one of the things human beings fear, because that changes, can change. There's the fear of being 
talked about in a bad way, you know, somebody spreading uh, gossip about us or some kind of disrepute. There's a fear of being afraid in groups, like afraid to speak up, timid, shy. You know how it is, these surveys that say, what are you most afraid of? And they've got all these things listed. Death rates lower than the fear of speaking in public. And then there's the fear of death and the fear of what happens after death. So these are the five fears that the Buddha said. If you develop these four powers, you never have to be afraid of those again. You want to know what they are? (laughs) (laughs) So the first one is that he lists as the power of wisdom. When the Buddha says something like that, he always gives a clear definition of what he's talking about in that case. What is wisdom in this case? And he says it's the, it's the wisdom to clearly see what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And for the Buddha, what, what is wholesome are the things that lead to more peace, more happiness. And the things that are unwholesome are things that lead to more agitation and anxiety and fear and harm. So keeping the precepts we took this morning, that's wholesome. And the more we work with them, we see just how beneficial they are. The kinds of things that are unwholesome, you know, lead lead to results that are um, sometimes frightening, sometimes saddening. And so, the wisdom to see the difference: what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. The way the text goes, he says. What is the power of wisdom? One has clearly seen and explored with wisdom those qualities that are unwholesome and reckoned as unwholesome. Those that are wholesome and reckoned as wholesome. Those that are blamable and reckoned as blamable and those that are blameless and reckoned as blameless. Those that are dark, those that are bright. Those that should not be cultivated and those that should be cultivated those that are unworthy of the noble ones and those that are worthy of the noble ones. And each of us has that ability to be a noble one by the way we live and the choices we make. So that's the power of wisdom. And then the second power is the power of energy. One generates the desire to abandon those qualities that are unwholesome and blamable and dark, that should not be cultivated, that are unworthy of noble ones. 
and makes an effort and arouses energy and applies one's mind and strives to abandon those qualities that are unwholesome and to cultivate those qualities that are wholesome, blameless, bright, that should be cultivated and that are worthy of noble ones. One makes an effort, arouses energy, applies one's mind, and strives. That's the power of energy. A really concerted effort. And of course, a lot of the things that are unwholesome are patterns and habits that we've learned. And to really put energy into changing them. And how does this relate to refuge? We just we don't have the same level of chaos and suffering in our life anymore. The third power is the power of blamelessness. Here one engages in blameless action by body, speech, or mind. That's the power of blamelessness. So, of course, everybody gets blamed. The Buddha was blamed. I've experienced blame. You've experienced blame. But if we're really making every effort to do those wholesome things and avoid the unwholesome things, the blame isn't very important. Whatever people think of us is not really a problem. We all make mistakes, and we can correct them. But it's like, Because of our intention, because of that wisdom, because of that effort and energy, we really don't have to be concerned. Living that blameless way, living according to those precepts. Now the fourth power and the last one really surprised me when I read this the first time. I mean, these are other ones, you know, that all makes sense. I mean, the fourth one does too, but I never thought of it this way. It's the power to sustain favorable relationships. What an interesting thing to throw into this list. He said that there are four ways to sustain favorable relationships. through giving, through endearing speech, through beneficent conduct, and impartiality. So if someone that we're in a relationship with would be uplifted and benefited from a gift, you give the gift. And sometimes that gift isn't material, it's more like encouragement to be good, encouragement to be wise, or, you know, the whole range of what you can give someone for their benefit. Endearing speech, of course, encouragement and kindness. Beneficent kind uh, conduct, doing things that are beneficial for them. And then impartiality, 
and someone, you know, you might think, what, what's that like? And you know how it is when um, maybe you're a teacher or you've had a teacher that doesn't treat the students impartially? You have favorites. Parents may have favorites or employers. And how that can affect the relationships in that environment. So just another thing to consider, like treating people impartially, regardless of any characteristics that they might have. So as I contemplated this teaching, this um, this way of looking at how we can cultivate our own habits and patterns and ways to act and think and feel or, or be, speak. I was thinking back to when I grew up and how in that small town um, it's really important to create and sustain and and nurtured your relationships. And how when the neighbor that was far in the neighboring farm, so my my family farmed in um, the one of the neighboring farms, the farmer got sick in the spring and my father planted all his corn. And one year when my father he got his foot in an auger, it was pretty close to the end of harvest, but maybe another four or five days or week of harvest left. And then a group of neighbors came in and finished it. And when you have that, those kinds of relationships, you really don't have to be as afraid of losing your livelihood. You take care of each other. And if we're living in those other ways, we're really, you know how it is, you, you've got you've got the same amount of people, about the same population as we had in our little town. You know everybody, pretty much. You know who's giving, you know who isn't, you know who's honest and kind. And it's like, the more we um, we cultivate those qualities in ourselves and take care of each other, as you well know, the less blame there is, the less chaos, the less fear. So I'm, one of the things, of course, that we experience as we leave our small communities and we go to places where we don't know each other, we might feel like, well, we don't have to be that way anymore. And yet that can cause so many problems. There really... It's not about what other people think, and it's not even about what's happening in our in our community or in our world, but what's happening inside. That as we purify our own hearts, our own minds, we develop more and more skill and ability to live with wisdom and blameless be, being blameless, leaving behind the, the toxic behaviors. 
the more we can stand without any fear. It's like, there's really nothing to be afraid of. And that we can come back to that as a solidity <coughs> inside ourselves, a refuge. Now, some, this can take some effort. <laughs> and the effort, you know, that power of energy is really helpful because it's not always easy. It's kind of the whole of the, of the teaching of the Buddha. If you boil it down into a very small... Um, short phrase or two the Buddha said avoid doing things that are harmful or evil He's there, that's the word do what's good and purify the mind and that has really powerful results and then as I talked about last night we need to have a lot of kindness and acceptance for all the ways that we make mistakes. Last night I told a story about the serial killer at the time of the Buddha and how he became a monk and became fully enlightened. But he had killed 999 people. And how do you live with that once you kind of wake up to the fact that, you know, that isn't the right thing to do? And uh, there's, there's a teacher, uh, some of you may have heard of, Ajahn Suchito, who's the abbot at the monastery where I was spending a winter, or most of the year. But during the winter retreat, I came to him, as I mentioned before, with, with a lot of regret about things that I had done. And Ajahn Suchito talked about how we need to ex- expand our heart how how can you hold all the regret from the past if you've killed 999 people and it's because of the enormity of the heart so whenever things are coming up for us about what we've done or you know once again reacting in some way then being present with it, letting it come in completely. First being aware and facing it fully. And then having some some gentleness and kindness around it along with the determination to not do that again. The kind of honesty that the Buddha is encouraging is really what makes it possible to just be the way we are. Just like, you know, forthright. Don't have to fear anything. Don't have to hide anything. And when we start to feel like we have to hide something, then that's a good signal. Let's look. Let's look. Do I... Do you really want to do things this way? Because I think a lot of times we get the get the feeling or we've been conditioned to think it's okay to kind of keep things behind the curtain. 
But that's how we feel uncertain. That's where the fear comes from. There are other kinds of sources for fear, of course, too. We can fear those changes that I talked about. What if something happens to us? Um, what if what if there's a, a war or you know there's all kinds of horrible possibilities in this world? There was a monk one time who came to the Buddha and said, I, I want to go to this country. It was actually the country where he grew up, but it was a very rough place. And the Buddha said, well, if you go there, what will you do if people ridicule you for being a monk? What if they you know, call you names and ridicule you? And he said, well, then I'll think, isn't it good of them that they're not throwing things at me? <laughs> they would say, okay, what if they start throwing things at you? He said, well, then I'll think, isn't it good of them that they're not hitting me with sticks? The Buddha said, well, what if they hit you with sticks? He said, well, isn't it good, I'll just think, isn't it good that they're not stabbing me with knives? And he said, well, what if they stab you with knives? And he said, well, isn't it good that they're not taking my life, ending my life? And he said, well, what if they end your life? And he said, well, well sometimes people really want to you know, leave this life. They've achieved what they want to achieve, and I won't have to look for a way to do that. <laughs> but he said, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and so he did. He went, he went back to this country, that country where you know, he had grown up, and he, he gathered a huge following of people. They really wanted to hear the teachings, and he himself, through teaching, became fully awake, an arahant, fully realized being. And, and so this is, you know, this isn't the way we usually approach threat, by thinking, oh, isn't it good that it's not worse? So I, I think the, the fundamental point here is that the refuge is really inside. In a way, it's inside, but it's also this connection to this larger truth of the way things are. And there's a power and energy in that. Super mundane reality that we align ourselves with when we do what's wholesome and avoid what's unwholesome. That we connect to when we really make that effort and live in a way that's blameless.
Do you have any questions or comments at this point? So you said, um, I think, um, to allow the heart to grow larger uh, to, in order to contain one, one's regrets, but I don't really understand how to do that. I think that, first of all, that just having that idea, that the way I can be with this instead of, oh, I did that stupid thing, or I did, you know, the kind of way we usually talk to ourselves, but have that idea first, that what's needed here is really an acceptance of the whole thing. That's, the, that's what happened. That's what I did. That's where, you know, I could have done something different. Okay, can I, can I really bring kindness and compassion to this? So that's a start. Just turning our mind in that direction. And when the, sometimes we have this habit of thinking, beating ourselves up and thinking neg- negatively, we can, we can start to re- recognize that there's a danger in that. When we see the danger in things, then oftentimes our mind is, is starting to drop it because it realizes the harm in it. When I uh, was in the monastery, because of, of living in the monastery, the things we say and do are so much magnified because of all the practice and everybody's got these same intentions. And I found that sometimes I would say something to a sister or something that was a little sharp. And I could feel my energy behind it. And I didn't want to do that. And I, and I couldn't understand where it was coming from. And then as I would observe my own patterns of thinking, I realized that whenever that happened, the day before, I would be having a kind of thought pattern that was this whole stream of negative self-criticisms. So I'd be thinking of all this, you know, not all, <laughs> that's a whole catalog, but the some of the things that were stupid that I had done, and it's like really, you know, like that that internal voice saying, that was really stupid. You did that, and then you did that. And there's this cringe that goes with it, or something that I've said, or a way that I treated someone. And then I realized that because I was not making that conscious, it was there, it was happening, but I wasn't attending to it. I was just going on with the day. That later, some kind of reaction would happen. My conclusion is that there's this childlike part of my mind that believes what it's told. And when I 
when I let in what's actually arising and I don't give it energy if it's unwholesome, which is around that wisdom and, you know, like applying energy, if I don't emphasize or keep, keep running over that unwholesome pattern of thought, but I replace it with positive thought, positive patterns. I mean, this can sound like psychological, behavioral sort of training, and that works. I find that the, the part of the brain, the part of the mind that believes this self-talk, really believes the more wholesome, more true representation. And the true representation often can include more understanding of the circumstances that surrounded those bad choices that I made. A lot of times we forget all that. I made this mistake or I did this thing or I had this wrong idea about how I should act or I was following a pattern that I had learned from way back when and I hadn't examined it. But if I put some wholesome, encouraging understanding around it, it really makes a huge difference. It starts to shift. All of that is the heart growing larger. More, it can it can contain more. It can it can hold more with a kind of evenness of mind, equanimity, and it can allow that past, whatever it's been, to be the way it was without having to be ashamed of it or push it away or shove it under the reaches of the mind. Does that help? I'll try it. And there are other ways, too. Ajahn Sumedho, who had been a monk for about 40 years, when I think when he said this, said, since I became a monk because of all the precepts, I haven't done anything really bad in 40 years. And any of us can do that. We can say, okay, from today onwards, I'm going to keep this standard. And then the longer we do that, the more the previous ways of being fade into the background. I don't do that anymore. And there's a different whole sense of ourselves. That nobility begins to evolve and blossom in us. You don't have to be a monk or a nun to do that. We all can do that. And sometimes it's a real challenge because of the messages we've been given through our life about maybe not being good enough or not whatever. But we can correct that and live in a way that's noble. It's not about wealth or intelligence or anything like that. It's available for all of us. It's about purity of heart. And it's a process. And we need to be willing to be persistent and loving towards ourselves as we go through it.
And then when we get to the point where we're going to take our last breath, we don't have any regrets. No fear of what's going to happen. Because we've been living in that refuge. So we're going to break for some walking meditation from now until 11.15. And at 11.15, we're going to have lunch. So for that, go to the field house. Because after a meal, we may just want to rest. There was a, a monk in Thailand, an abbot at, the mon- at a monastery where I was staying, who said, at a minimum, he was talking to monastics, but <clears throat> so you'd have to adjust at a minimum one hour of meditation in the morning, one hour at midday, and one hour in the evening. It was a little bit easier that you only got one meal a day about 8 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So we have this um, hopefully comfortable situation of having a filled stomach. We want to sit with our spine relatively straight. Stable on the chair or the floor. Relaxed hands, relaxed legs, relaxed body. Balanced so that we don't have to work to hold ourselves up. Kind of like a stack of coins. Just balanced. Solid. Notice if there's any tension around the eyes or feeling of tiredness. And just being aware. Tension in the face. Just bringing bringing awareness to it can help it to relax. Tension in the shoulders. tension in the legs, just observing how is this body right now, Breathing in, 
it a long in-breath or a short in-breath? Breathing out. Is it long or short? Breathing in, see if you can be aware of your whole body as you breathe in. And aware of your whole body as you breathe in. My tendency is to make the breath a little longer without even trying. I'm trying to take in my whole body. (coughs) Spacious kind of awareness. Helpful to add a bit of loving kindness there, a kind awareness. A relaxed, attentive, alert. Awareness. mind may feel a little sluggish or drifty, floaty. Don't waste time with that. Sharpen it up. Bring up some energy. Sharpen the awareness of the breathing. And if that Breathing is too subtle and interesting. Bring a phrase to mind. Or even just a word. In Thailand, classically, they use Bhutto. Breathe in, Bhut. Breathe out, Do. It is Buddha. But in the Pali language, it's the, the way you would use it as the subject of a sentence. Udo, Udo. Maybe for you, you'd like to use kindness or patience. Or a short phrase. 
something to keep the mind wholesome and clear and focused. Remember that primitive part of the brain, that mind, that childlike part of the mind is listening. If you've had children, you know how they listen to everything. Our minds do that too. They take it in and then they spew it out later. Kindness. Patience.
or we can observe our breathing and the state of our mind. Is the mind distracted? Is it focused? Is it expanded and spacious? Or is it contracted? Is it sluggish and slow or is it bright and clear? And then incline toward the state of mind that you want. The Buddha often talked about inclining towards the deathless, that which does not change, is not born, does not die. It's not an attainment, it's a realization. And it's here now, present, available. And the Buddha called it the highest happiness. Without wanting anything, without wanting to get rid of anything. completely peaceful. And sometimes the state of our mind can approximate that to some degree. And not want to get rid of anything and not want anything. Settled. At some point when the mind becomes very still and alert, something else kind of takes over and we just observe. Ajahn Chah said, so many different kinds of animals come out to drink at the pond. What arises in the mind or what, what shows up?
keep working with the mind. Come back to your breathing, whatever object you have. Bring up some energy. Presence with the in-breath. Presence with the out-breath. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Bhutang damang sankang namasami. There's a passage in the Dhammapada that says, threatened, afraid, people go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. That's not the secure refuge. 
that's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. But when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the end of suffering. That's the secure refuge, that the highest refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering. There's a chant that we do. It's, it's actually um, one of the very earliest discourses of the Buddha. It's called the Mahamangala Sutta. It's translated sometimes as the auspicious activities or the highest blessings. And I thought I would talk through the meaning of the stanzas. It ends with the Buddha saying, They who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. So what is this path? It starts out with avoiding those of foolish ways associating with the wise and honoring those worthy of honor. These are the highest blessings. So Buddha talked quite a lot about who we associate with. And there are beautiful passages about how we should be friends to one another and take care of each other, um, always guide each other to do what's good, try to help each other stay away from what's not good. He said, a good friend will watch over you when you're not mindful, and they'll watch over your stuff when you're not mindful. And he's talking about staying away from, not associating with people who are, you know, violent, mean, foolish, doing things that are leading to more suffering, and associating with those who really do see the way things work, you might say, the truth of the nature of things. Um, Those who always be a good example, or own it when they're not, and work to um, correct their faults. And then this part about honoring those worthy of honor can really cause one to reflect on who is that? One time when I was in England training at Amaravati Monastery, um, there was a, a class of third graders that, I think there were third graders that came to the monastery. That monastery is quite popular. Busloads of people stop and get out and come, come into the temple. And uh, the monk that was there receiving them um, was really great with these kids. 
And one thing he, he asked them was, who are your heroes? And so they talked about that a little bit. And then he, um, he was sitting with a big Buddha statue in front of a big Buddha statue, and he said, that's my hero. <laughs> and talking about you know, how, how to choose those people that we honor and respect. And that whole process of giving respect to what deserves respect. When I first used to go to the monastery, I would bow with everybody else, but I told Ajahn Pasano, my teacher, at one point, I don't do that at home. I felt a little hypocritical. And he said, well, it's just giving respect to what deserves respect. And I thought, hmm, really needed to look into what is it that deserves respect? What are you bowing to? It's not statues. It's just a reminder. It's an icon. What do you, what do you give respect to? And there was one time when um, both abbots of the monastery, Ajampasano and Amaro, were there. And this other monk came that I knew a little bit, but not very well. And he's more senior to them. And both of them got down on the floor and bowed to this monk. And it just was so beautiful. It's like a humility. You know, the Buddha himself said, after his enlightenment, we all need some, someone to bow to, to look up to, to, you know, have that reverence for. And actually, because his full enlightenment was so powerful, he couldn't see anyone who he could bow to, but he bowed to the Dhamma, to the way things are, to that truth, that beautiful, underlying, unchangeable reality. Now there's a monk in Thailand who wrote a book about Buddhism and Christianity, and he equated Dhamma with God. And I think it's a worthwhile investigation. What, what does God mean to you if you're looking in that direction for that, that concept, those, that terminology? Because we're all working with the same spiritual material in different forms and ways of describing it. The next stanza is living in places of suitable kinds. So, this looks pretty suitable. (laughs) There are certainly places on the planet that are unsuitable, where it's hard to maintain one's virtue and even one's life. But we're pretty fortunate in that regard. With the fruits of past good deeds, realizing that there's some good causes and conditions that got put in place before in our in our lives, probably way back, and guided by the rightful way, and that's actually guided by the noble eightfold path. So there's this. Um, 
as was in the quote from the Dhammapada, the Four Noble Truths, that there is this reality, that there is suffering, dissatisfaction. And when we open up to that, we are taking the first and absolutely essential step to being free from suffering. And then by opening up to whatever distress we may be experiencing, suffering, discontent, whether small or large, we can investigate the underlying cause. The second noble truth is that we see the cause and abandon it, turn away from that. Whether that's attachment, greed, ill will, or some kind of misunderstanding or ignorance of the way things actually are. And when we do that, we have the third noble truth, the suffering ceases. And it is possible to just experience that, a realization, and then the suffering ends. And then that's, that's the pattern. And work with everything that way. The fourth noble truth, that noble eightfold path, requires that we develop wisdom, that we develop meditation, and we develop <coughs> virtue. So the words are usually actually something like right view, right intention, right rights, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right energy or effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And there's, of course, many teachings about what that means. But living according to that path is what it's referring to here, guided by the rightful way. The Buddha wasn't um, trying to turn people into Buddhists. He was trying to show what he had realized, what he found that actually works. And it's, it's not done from kind of a moralistic position that you're bad or you're good in that way. It's about how we... It's about wholesome and unwholesome actions. They either move towards peace or they move away from peace. And that there's, there's always the opportunity to, to change direction. And keep trying to change it, move it in a good direction. <laughs> Accomplished in learning and craftsman skills, with discipline highly trained. So, learning, developing <coughs> skill, this is all uh, training. Most of you have already heard that my son became a monk when he was 24, and that's how I got into this. 
And before that, he was a jazz pianist. He started when he was five, and he was playing in the Holiday Inn Lounge when he was 14, and had a little group and did all kinds of things. And went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, so it was really... Um, good jazz school, get a degree in piano performance and composing and all that. And in an hour upon hour in the practice room, and he decides to be a Buddhist monk. And not only does he decide to be a Buddhist monk, he decides to be a Buddhist monk in the one tradition that doesn't allow playing any musical instruments. (laughs) None. And people would say, hey, you can't give that up. But what he observed is that all it was all a training. And the focus and his ability to improvise and be aware in the moment and move with it wasn't so different from meditation. Um, it was all training. trying to remember a quote from a teacher I just heard recently. Beauty, you might have to help me, is attention to detail. Sorry. Ajampanyo Punadamo. But you can, the craft you might even have experienced, if you, if you do any kind of painting or some kind of activity where you really have to pay attention and you get into that zone, it's concentration. We love to concentrate, actually. We just have to find the right way that we want to run to go do it. <laughs> um, Discipline, highly trained, with speech that is true and pleasant to hear. It's very important um, that we're honest, that we're truthful, especially with ourselves. But truthful in any case. If we have that um, commitment to to truthfulness, and we have a, an intention, a, a commitment to investigate, we can find out all of it. And um, all of what's true. And this idea of speech that's pleasant to hear um, is great, but it's not universally applicable. The Buddha talked about how it's very important to say what's true and to not say what's not true. To speak the truth when there's a when there's a good purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. And at the right time. 
So sometimes we have to say what's true for the benefit, for the good purpose, even though somebody doesn't want to hear it. But we have to look for the right time. And in another in another discourse, he says, speak, have a heart of loving kindness. Make sure that the heart and mind is coming from a place of loving kindness rather than inner hatred. And he also throws in gentle rather than harsh. Now, sometimes things can sound harsh. Sometimes people really need a jolt to wake up. But if it comes from that heart of loving kindness with a good purpose, it's not coming from our own selfishness or irritation or desire some kind, then it's the, the kind of speech that the Buddha would recommend. So it's really useful to have those five qualities in mind when we're going to talk to somebody, especially if it's something difficult. Am I really coming to this from the right place? He also tells the monks and nuns that we shouldn't criticize somebody else unless we've checked to make sure we're not doing the same thing. Cuts down on the projection. (laughs) Somebody said to me, you know, when you start to look at what the Buddha said about right speech, you know, we should just, like, cut out about 70% of what we say, and I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Providing for mother and father's support and cherishing family. The Buddha really put highly that we respect our parents and look after them. And, you know, honor the the role we have in the people's lives around us. Now, there are lots of different situations. And sometimes... There are situations where we have to be, um, we have to protect ourselves from some of the people in our, in our families. And that also needs to be considered. And ways of work that harm no being. So this comes into that right livelihood idea. Making every effort to avoid trading in drugs and alcohol and um, buying and selling living beings. The Buddha puts a list. Fishing and farming make it hard sometimes, but we do the best we can. There was a monk who went to a very rough town in Thailand, was living there. It was a fishing village and Someone said to him, are you teaching them to not fish? And he said, no, I'm trying to teach them not to kill each other. So (laughs) it's all relative. (laughs) Um, Generosity and a righteous life, giving. Buddha talked about giving and being generous as sort of the first level of, 
of um, opening up to the path and acting in ways that leave no blame, like we talked about earlier. These are the highest blessings. Steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, all those ways of breaking moral precepts, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind, and heedfulness in all things that arise. Heedfulness is a very, very nice word. How to be heedful in the way that we do things. So that's mindfulness and what wisdom, clear comprehension, respectfulness and of humble ways, contentment and gratitude, and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. These are the highest blessings. Patience and willingness to accept one's faults. That, like, okay, I did it. (laughs) So what? (laughs) It's all right. Seeing venerated seekers of the truth, so looking to those people who are accomplished on the path and sharing often the words of Dhamma, so the, the words of the truth of the way things are. This holy life lived with ardent effort, seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of Nibbana. These are the highest blessings. Although involved in worldly tasks, unshaken the mind remains, and beyond all sorrow, spotless, secure, These are the highest blessings. They who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. Comments? Questions? Complaints? Disagreements? Special cases? <laughs> yes. Um, I really struggle with um, what is the truth and what is my view. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? How, how do you know something is the truth and not just the filter through which you look at the world? It's a very good question, and it's a constant investigation because we're all working until we get to that place where we fully realize the way things are, we've lost all um, potential for greed, hatred, or delusion, we're working with a certain amount of, you know, obscurity, or, um, you know, our, our vision is somewhat obscured. So a very good way is to check it against these kinds of teachings. If anything goes the other way from what those teachings are, look at that really carefully. Um, The Buddha gives some very good guidelines around how to evaluate whether or not someone's a good teacher. It's very good to have a teacher. And friends that you feel are also examining this, because we can help each other see through our own blind spots. 
when you when you look at a teacher, the Buddha said, look to see if they would say or do anything out of greed that would lead people the wrong way. And you have to watch them for a long time. If they would say or do anything out of hatred or ignorance that would lead people the wrong way. And um, just really reflecting on that. And... The first, that first step is your question. How can I, how can I know that this view? So much of the time, we just, we just take our habits and ways of thinking and perceptions. We're not even aware of them, and we're not even looking. We're not even trying to to see whether or not this is really on track. This is true. So that's that's the very first crucial step. I think the more that we listen to the teachings, the better. Like they say, hearing the Dhamma frequently taught gives us different ideas about how to look at things. But still keep in mind, you know, do is this what I'm hearing really in line with what the Buddha actually taught? Yes. Is there guidance for the um, position of the tongue while observing the breath? Yeah, usually it floats to the roof of the mouth. I know there are some some teaching and systems that are very specific about that, but in general, not in the Pali canon. Yes. At the beginning of that, we talk about avoiding people who are, you know, like not supportive of the path. They're violent or they're angry or have foolish ways. I have foolish ways. <laughs> Many of those are in my family. So, what practically? What do you actually do? <clears throat> it's a tough one, and there's no real, you know, there's no definite answer. You have to look at the situation, but let's start with the non-family ones, and then we'll move in. (laughs) Um, Sometimes people come, start coming to teachings, and they start to pick them up, and then they start to feel uncomfortable with their friends, because their friends are, you know, partying and doing all kinds of things that they start to realize they don't want to do anymore. But there's a there's a, a a difficult period there, where they start to lose the friends, and really and truly, so many of the people in my life are not in my life anymore. But when you start to see how this practice and path brings so much joy and so much relief, and then you find friends who are doing the same thing, and it's just such a gift that you know you can you can care about people but you don't have to spend a lot of time with them and as one fairly wise person in my life once said just because you're related to someone doesn't mean you have to like them <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to get along it doesn't mean you have to spend time together 
So it depends a bit on what family members it is. There are some of them that it really is okay to for them to have their thing and their way of living, and you have your thing and your way of living, and you meet on Christmas, and that's enough. Or maybe it's someone like a parent that really needs your care, and you have to be there. And then you really practice with it. And it can become such an important practice to how do I stay um, centered in and, you know, connected to the, the virtue that I'm trying to develop and not follow in these ways. Because some of these things in our immediate family are so conditioned from such a long time that I remember being in my 40s or probably in my 40s, going back home, and all of a sudden you're 12 again. (laughs) And all those old things are coming up. And and so to to really work with um, what's going on in that so that we don't slip back into some foolish behaviors of our own. And then there's also the just accepting people as they are and not trying to change them. I tried to change my mother for a long time. You know how that went. (laughs) I had to change. And And I could change for the better and let her be as she is and love her and respect her for the good in her. She's a lot of good. And just kind of like know and understand the unskillful parts. And like, okay. And I have to say now she's 90 and I'm looking after her. And many people comment and have for the last maybe, I don't know, years, how many years, that we have such a good relationship. And I say... I have worked for decades. (laughs) And it's true because I I needed to shift a lot of things inside. I needed to come to more of a true um, picture, the reality, the, the real truth about why the things she was saying were so upsetting to me that there was a, a woundedness inside that kept getting reacted you know, reactive, and I, and I, you know, used it as a practice to really uncover those things and work with them, and once you kind of open up the wound and you allow some real work with it, then it has a chance to heal. So that's a little bit without knowing the situation. Anybody got the feeling that this is just way too idealistic? Not necessarily too idealistic, but I worry a little about this whole thing of surrounding myself with people who think the same things I do, and um, it just becoming too uh, myopic, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And I've seen that sometimes where people feel like they can only associate with the people in their group. And then there's a very, there's a real danger there of becoming like superior to everybody else. And that's not what this is. This is more about, you don't have to associate with people who think like you on everything, but they need to be virtuous. It's much easier to be virtuous when you're around people who are virtuous. So you could surround yourself with people who think better than you do. <laughs> it's like playing tennis with a really good partner. <laughs> it makes you better. But, um, yeah. I, but then I'm still, I mean, it's, that's still a narrow path. You know, um, and I'm just thinking of the election, you know, and how much I didn't see and how much I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And and that's because of this. It's because of me surrounding myself too much with people, like-minded people. And I, I'm not saying, you know, I should put myself with, you know, people who are doing something harmful or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it isn't that. Um, although I, some of those things I did see is sort of harmful. Um, I'm struggling with this a little bit right now. I'm glad you're bringing it up because I think a lot of us are struggling with things in that area. And what I would say is, even though we haven't discussed it, I'm pretty sure I'm related to and know quite well people who would have handled that election differently than I did. And... I think it's good to talk about what they see and what they want and what they feel is going to happen if they do it, if they make this decision or that decision. But the truth is, a lot, they're good too. They're they're living, you know, the ones you really want to spend time with are the ones who are living a virtuous life, even if they have a different idea of how to make the world better. You probably still want to make the world better. And, you know, it it can come to the place where the difference is, um, do you want to help the people who need help, or you just want to protect and hold on to what you have? And even when we come, any of us comes to that place of just wanting to protect and hold on to what we have and not care about other people, there's still virtue in there somewhere. So it's a little like we have to know our strength. To not, to, if, I mean, it's not like you only talk to people that are just like you or, following this expression of the path, but choosing how much to talk to people who are really closed down and are developing an an attitude of hatred or discrimination, maybe not so much of that, but also a, a recognition that we all have some of that inside of us. And and to be willing to to know to know that that makes sense it's not Somewhat. as it's not as like rigid and unforgiving 
as it could sound. It's just that it's a whole lot better to be with friends who are doing good things, especially if you think of like young people. You want your kids to go around with the kids who aren't going to do the vandalism. They're not going to burn down the community center. That just happened near where I live. A couple boys playing with fire burned down the community center. And it's just millions of dollars and a lot of disruption for a lot of people. You know, foolish ways. You don't need friends like that. You need to help each other not do things like that. So that's kind of where it's at. It's not about, oh, I just have to stick with my own little group that only looks at Buddhism and only believes in a certain kind of politics. In that, in that context, can you speak a little about um, expanding the heart to include that and loving kindness? I think I'm confused. Yeah, so we need kindness and compassion and wisdom. So the heart can have this love for everyone, every being, and a respect for the virtue in them and know exactly where they're not virtuous and to not follow them ourselves. But we don't condemn them or discount them. We may not spend as much time with them, but as we, as we practice in this um, development of the heart makes it larger and larger, and we and we practice more loving kindness and more compassion and more appreciative joy and more equanimity. Those are called the divine abidings, the Brahma Viharas. And there's one of them or more is applicable in absolutely every situation. So <clears throat> loving kindness is like the sun and shines on everyone, but it's, it's there when people are happy can be there other times too, but it's the prominent, you know, this is, people are doing good things and people are happy. And then compassion is when people are suffering. And it's a different energy. It doesn't mean loving kindness isn't there, but compassion is in the forefront when people are suffering. When people are doing good, advancing in life, good things are happening to them, then appreciative joy. You, you just, like when I first told this, um, my son's first abbot, Ajahn Jayasaro in Thailand, that I was, I was, I decided to become a nun. He said, my heart is full of mudita for you. It's like, yeah. And when people are doing things that are unwholesome, then it's equanimity, evenness of mind. It's not like anger and, you know, it's, it's evenness of mind. It's like, okay, you know, this is how things are right now. This is the way they're looking at things, the way they're thinking. These are the habits. It's like, okay, evenness of mind. But it's still as, um, uplifted, 
internal peace that's behind it. But the wisdom helps us see. And so you can love people when they're doing bad things. It's, you know, and know that this is bringing um, sadness and grief to them. More to them than to whoever they're affecting, actually. Does that help? I think we'll chant the highest blessings for you so you can hear how it sounds if you've never heard it. You got a chanting book there, sister? And then we'll go do some walking meditation. So this is the way the, the discourse begins. Thus have I heard that the Blessed One was staying at Salvati, abiding in the Jeta's Grove in Anatapindika's Park, then in the dark of the night a radiant Deva illuminated all Jeta's Grove. She bowed down low before the Blessed One, Then standing to one side, she said, Devas are concerned for happiness and ever long for peace. The same is true for humankind. What then are the highest blessings? Avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, and honoring those worthy of honor. These are the highest blessings, living in places of suitable kinds, with the fruits of past good deeds, and guided by the rightful way. These are the highest blessings, accomplished in learning and craftsman skills, with discipline highly trained, and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. These are the highest blessings, providing for mother and father's support, and cherishing family, and ways of work that harm no being. These are the highest blessings, generosity and a righteous life, offering help to relatives and kin, and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings, steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind and heedfulness in all things that arise. These are the highest blessings, respectfulness and of humble ways, contentment and gratitude and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. These are the highest blessings, patience and willingness to accept one's faults, seeing venerated seekers of the truth, 
and sharing often the words of Dhamma. These are the highest blessings, the holy life lived with ardent effort, seeing for oneself the noble truths, and the realization of Nibbana. These are the highest blessings, although involved in worldly tasks, unshaken the mind remains, and beyond all sorrow spotless secure. These are the highest blessings, they who live by following this path, no victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. Okay. We're going to do a, a little bit shorter walking meditation. We'll come back at 2.45. I'm going to talk a little bit about how to create a refuge. Recently, we helped a a couple by um, leading their wedding blessing. And they really looked at creating in their refuge, in their home, making their home a refuge. And think about what that what that's like. For some of us, we may feel that way about our home. We may think of ways in which we could make it even more of a refuge. This is a a no meanness zone, or um, this is a place where we keep the precepts. Often, when teachers talk about the five precepts, they talk about how they are a gift to the world, a gift. Our keeping them is a gift to all living beings. If everybody kept the five precepts, think of it, we wouldn't have to be afraid of anything. Be like a heaven realm right here. Wouldn't have to lock anything, wouldn't have to be worried about someone lying to us. If our home is like that, then it's a true refuge. learning ways to handle the upsets that are fair and kind. And a lot of this is correcting habits. It's really wonderful when other living beings don't have to be afraid of us or trustworthy. 
recently in one of Ajahn Pasano's books I read that he said, precepts are mirrors. They reflect back and help us see what's going on in terms of our intentions, the source of our clinging. All these different methods that the Buddha gave on how to work with what comes up in life, what comes up in the mind, in the heart. And paying attention to how really powerful our intentions are. can be an island unto ourselves. The Dharma is an island, a real refuge. And we can also enfold others into that. I wish I had this understanding, this teaching much earlier in my life. It's interesting to me how a person who really wants to be good can still have so much confusion and not have the clarity to know how to do it. It's very fortunate to have it spelled out clearly. Try it. See if it works. And we learn by our own experience and come to trust through our own experience. And when we see our lives becoming happier and our relationships becoming stronger, our influence becoming more powerful, I guess, but more valuable. Then bit by bit, we understand, yes, this is really, this is really worth it. This is really the way to go.
We'll do walking meditation for about 20 minutes. Come back at 3.30. Three thirty, three thirty-five, twenty, twenty-five minutes, and then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.